Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. My very first visit was the first weekend I was there. My daughter came down with my granddaughter who was 10. I'll never, ever forget the look of her face when she saw me in that space suit all tied up with cable ties. One millimetre to breathe around my neck, my sleeves, and just seeing all the cable ties. And she didn't know her reaction was, do I go and hug you? Do I stand back? The look on her face, I will never forget. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Some of the best people I've ever met have been to prison. And God knows, the worst people I've ever met will never go to prison. It's a funny old world. 
This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Our guest today is a lady called Catherine, who's lived her entire life in Horsham, a town located roughly halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. My children have a grandmother who lives in Horsham. Hello, Grandma Carol. So I'm reasonably familiar with the community. I know that Horsham is small, it's sweet, and everyone knows everyone in Horsham. It's probably not the place I'd go back to if I was a middle-aged woman who'd been busted stealing and done a stretch in jail. But that's exactly what Catherine's done. She went to prison for the first time in her late 50s. Her crime was stealing from her employer. It's a point she doesn't dispute. In fact, Catherine doesn't even make much of the circumstances she was living in at the time of her offending, which I think are very significant. I happen to think hers is a case of a mental health crisis, actually. I think her circumstances are all too common, as is the pretense that they didn't contribute to her sudden, disastrous and out-of-character behaviour. As you're listening to Catherine's story and to the way she's been treated since her release from jail, I'm going to ask you to please keep a few things in mind, particularly if they resonate with you personally. The female prison population in Australia increased by 64% between 2009 and 2019. A report released in 2020 found that women in prison have disproportionately high rates of insecure housing, mental health issues, drug and alcohol addiction and chronic illness. How closely do you think that list could describe you or your female friends and relatives? Insecure housing, mental health issues, drug and alcohol addiction, chronic illness. I know our guest Catherine wouldn't have thought it described her, but it kind of fits. Australian women are drowning under the weight of the ever-increasing workload expected of us as the nation's silent, unpaid carers. More and more women are caring for our ageing population, on top of caring for children and working full-time jobs. It's a lot of pressure, and it's increased threefold since the onset of COVID. So, with that cheery thought in mind, it's time to meet Catherine from Horsham. Horsham is is a small town. How many people, roughly, do you reckon, live in Horsham? I think we're about 18,500 now, maybe 19,000, um, close to that. Um, but, yeah, we are getting bigger and bigger. Um, and, you know, it, it's still just that small town, mm-hmm. you know. Everyone knows everyone pretty well. If you don't know their name or you don't know what they do, you certainly know their face. Um, so to go to the supermarket and just sort of, uh, smile at people quite often as you pass them is very, very common. You know, even just on the outskirts, driving on the dirt roads or whatever, you're always waving at the farmers, you know, you wave at each other. It's that sort of community spirit, I guess. Yeah, so we were just talking about the fact that my ex-husband is from there and so you you know of his family. You and I have just mm. thought of a couple of connections that we've mm. got there. Mm. And um, we, of course, we know about the Kmart. As if you couldn't, I mean, that's <laughs> that's the landmark. That's it. Yeah, his mum lives near the Kmart, so you know where that is. I do. Yeah, I of do. The old Kmart in the Plaza, absolutely. Yes. So it's that kind of town, Horsham. Yep. It's a beautiful little town. It is. 
you grew up there you've been there your whole life had you always worked your whole life or were you home with kids for a while or I had no I just for a little while with kids but not very long I've always been career orientated Mm. um in the past I've worked in law offices um I've always done office administration that type of thing but I also worked in child protection and I ran residential units um in Ballarat for quite a long time looking after um uh, children at risk um age from naught to 18 and funny enough in that that was when I was very first married back at the end of the 80s early 90s and in that time um two of the children that we actually had um come into our care were a brother and a sister and uh they're my foster children now. They're in their 30s and married with children. So, you know, it was a very, very special time of my life. I loved the work that I did. Unfortunately, it was around about the time of the Kennett government and uh, they came in and decided to to shatter all these resi units and this sort of thing. And um, so, yeah, at that time I started to have my own babies too. So I took a little bit of time off and we moved back to Horsham. Yeah, so you're a definitely a law-abiding citizen in fact if anything you sort of you're a real giver in the community aren't you look I I was um I don't like to praise myself too much because my crime keeps coming in I think you know um unfortunately I still believe that my crime at the moment defines me because that's how the community sees it but look I've always been on on committees with kids you know sporting um, clubs, soccer clubs, football, netball. I've played netball. I coached netball. Um, followed all of that with my children and grandchildren. Um, yeah, I've, I've always, always been a part of the community in one way or the other. And um, my parents were very highly regra- regarded um, citizens in the community. Well, so must you have been, though. If, you, if you'll allow me, at least, to leave your offending out, you must have been very highly regarded in the community uh, for 50 years, at least. You've, you've, ha- you've worked hard, you've worked in the community sector, then you've had kids, you've fostered kids, you've been on committees to do with kids' stuff, sport and everything like that. You've played sport. Did you remain married through, through that whole time? No, I was married for 15 years. Um, it was a, a domestic violent relationship, I'm, I must admit. Um, I, I Once again, I, I struggle to say that because there were parts of him where he was a very good dad. Um, I, I don't begrudge him of that. Um, but our relationship was quite volatile um, and it was more... Um, mental abuse and anything Um, and it got to the stage where my children um, got to about 10 the eldest was about 10 and I started noticing things in his behavior and things he would say and do that reminded me of his father and we were still together at this stage and that was what really made me think this is now affecting the kids there's only a certain amount of, of time Um, that you can actually cover up for kids when they're little with this sort of thing. But when the kids start displaying the same sort of behaviour and you know it's very, very unhealthy, that was when I really made the decision that um, I needed to get out of this um, relationship, which I did um, with the children. And, uh, yeah, so I would work two, sometimes three jobs. They're all sort of part-time. 
my parents were great. They would help me out. They would come and sit with the kids while I worked nights, that sort of thing. But I always worked. I always provided as best I could for my kids. You know, I, I loved my kids dearly. I still love them dearly, even though, unfortunately, with my biological children, yeah, we are estranged at the moment. And that, that's quite heartbreaking. But it's a work in progress. Mm. Yep. Right up until your 50s, you're creating a pretty solid legacy, I'm going to say, in, in the town of Horsham and very well thought of. You must have had a lot of friends in town and a lot of great social connections. You know, I have lost a lot of friends over what's happened. Um, but yes, I did have a lot of wonderful, wonderful friends. And I guess there's, you know, even though we may not be friends now because, um, and, and I can understand why, they're, they're bus- a lot of them were business people. So they cannot be deemed as seen to be friends with somebody who's done a white collar crime it can affect their business because this is how the community think you know that they, they think why would I give you business when you're best friends with somebody who spent time in prison for a white collar crime so they have to cut the ties they have to cut the ties I get it I get it and I, I hurt them I hurt them too because they were all very unaware of my behavior and what I had done well let's get to that time in your life though you know, let's let's talk about what was going on in your life. Firstly, when you when you moved to this place of employment, you've changed jobs at some point in your fifties, and you've moved into this retail slash manufacturing place. What was going on in in your life at this stage? At that stage, all my children were were teenagers, and I guess I was very lost in myself at that time. I didn't know who I was. I felt. I felt I had given and given and given all my life. I didn't have time for me. I became a carer to my mother. Oh, my God. This I hear you, girl. This is a common, you're in the sandwich generation. You're yeah. caring for your parents and your kids. Mum yeah. had dementia um, mm. and I'm an only child, so I had no other family to share that burden. Mm. Um, we are an Italian family. so. It was no question to care for them. Like to have three generations in the in the house was was nothing, you know. So mum passed away in 2014. And the, yeah, dad was starting to get dementia then as well. He was living with me. He'd been living with me for about 18 months. Mum was in a nursing home. That's a lot of pressure. And it's also a lot of, as you say where's your life? Where are you? There is no time or space for you in there. Michelle, I had none. No, you're the carer and that's all you are. Yeah. yeah. I had none. I had none. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my daughter, the following year in 2015, gay, uh, fell pregnant. Um, she was only in year 12. Mm. Um, fell pregnant to a, a lovely guy, but, you know, they were young. Yeah, I had to support her as well financially, you know, to keep the baby, to provide for the baby. So, you know, it was nothing in my household to have my dad with me, myself, my three biological children who by this stage were probably late teens, early 20s, a girlfriend and a boyfriend, a baby when the baby came along. 
and also my my foster daughter who lived in town god bless her she had she's got three beautiful children and they were all very young too and of course they always wanted to be at nuna's house so it was nothing for me to have all these people at my house and you can't even see a future for yourself in that situation can you it just feels like no. oh my life's over yeah yeah it is but you know I loved my family don't get me yeah. wrong but you know um and I ended up finding solace in my bedroom I <laughs> I, mm. I made a um a little recluse in my bedroom and I had a little <laughs> mini bar fridge um with my cheese and bickies and my vino um and I had the kettle and the toaster on top of it I, I just had my own little you know mm. where I escaped to um but yeah, um, it was hard. I just felt, I felt nothing for a long time. I felt absolute nothing. Losing my mum as an only child was just was just tragic. Mm. I didn't really get to mourn her death till about six months later, I guess, when one day I woke up and it was like, my mum's gone. She's gone. And because I was too busy supporting my dad, mm. I was too busy supporting my kids who adored their grandma. And I didn't have time to grieve myself. I had nobody else to help me with the arrangements with mum. I had to do everything. And, and that's okay. Well, I but mean, there was no time for yeah, me. Yeah, because, I mean, the kids were adults. You actually had a lot of adults mm-hmm. around. So that's that was purely a psychological state of being, mm. wasn't it? Yes, definitely definitely yep yep and and then I had to make the decision to put my dad in a nursing home eventually so um yeah that that was a very hard decision um because very close to my dad and and that was very very hard and he's still alive um unfortunately I can't see him because of COVID I haven't haven't seen him since the last school holidays which would have been about June I took my foster grandchildren over um because he's about 45 minutes away. But, yes, yeah, so I haven't seen him. So it's been three years of no Father's Day, three years of none of his birthdays, three years of no Christmases. So, yeah, it, it, it's been tough. It's been tough. So this is the situation you're in. How did it happen? It was, okay, it was, it, it was, it, it was easy. Simple as that. It was easy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I did it for three years. Had you ever, ever done anything like this before? Had you ever stolen anything in your life? No. Ever thought about it? You know, I I think about the most I'd ever stolen in my life before would be be the odd grape or something from Coles or, you know, um, that sort of thing. But, no, I, I wouldn't even take an apple from a supermarket. You know, it's ridiculous. I'd been given the trust by by the owner who who by the way, was a friend, which is even worse. And I had all their personal bank account details. I had all their passwords. I had everything. There was nothing that was backed up that was, you know, any way that would trigger for them that I was doing this. And, yeah, I did it for three years. Not so much their personal stuff. I didn't touch anything of that, but it was more the business and nothing. So how did it start? It just started. I needed money one day. I was broke, stone broke, stone broke. And I guess to, um, you know, my kids maybe needed registration for their car. They had no money. 
but if I don't have the registration paid, how am I going to get to work, mum? Oh, okay, mum would steal some money to do that, you know, and then it'd be something else and something else. But in saying that, Michelle, please do not think that my children had any part of this. They did not. My children did not know what I was doing. To me, it was just, oh, God, I just can't stand this. I I can't. Like everything's closing in on me. You know, mum, I need this. Mum, I need that. My dad, my dad was only on a pension. His medical bills were through the roof. Who was paying for those? I was. I was earning like $700 a week and I still had a mortgage. Like, so I was drowning in debt and this was how I could see I could just get out of the debt, not to make a fortune, but to survive, to get my head above water. And it kept everybody quiet. Like, just leave me alone. Here, have this, have this. So I guess the kids got to the stage too where they thought, mum's just a, you know, an FPOS machine. Yep. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal mentally with the arguments of, no, you can't have it. If, if you can't get the registration money for your car, well, you can say, we'll walk to work. You know, the arguments that would come with that, I couldn't deal with. I just couldn't deal with. So it was easy for me to go, I'll just flog another $600 and there's their registration. And I did that for three and a half years. Yeah, it was easy. Initially, did you think you would pay it back? Was it a case of? Oh, it was. Yeah. Yes. It was like, oh, and and I started, I remember taking little tallies of amounts that I took. Well, it was in my bank account anyway, but um, I would take it and think, oh, yeah, now if I pay that back at 50 bucks a week and I do, but then I thought, well, then they're going to question, you know, when she looks at the account, she might question the money coming in. It's not a sale. So where's it coming in from? So I couldn't pay it back. How else was I going to pay it back? I couldn't. Then I'd be caught. Mm. So, yeah, unfortunately it did. It went on for three years. And in the end, mentally I was, yeah, I, I, I hated myself. I hated myself and I, I had contemplated suicide thinking that would be the easy way out because then the kids would get my superannuation and my life insurance and that way, um, you know, I could leave a note, whatever I owed could be paid back to the owner. You know, I had all these different things planned and in the end, you know, I just went, I need to be caught. It's a bit like it, it's a drug. It's a drug. It, it's as simple as that. And sometimes I'd go, gee, I haven't taken any for a while. Oh, okay. I'll I'll take another $500 and maybe this weekend I can go to Melbourne for a weekend. That's what it was like. It was terrible. And I never enjoyed the weekends in Melbourne. I never enjoyed anything that I got from it. So I wanted to be caught and I became very sloppy in my transactions. Um, Very, very sloppy. What was the total in the end? Were you keeping a tally as you went? No, no, oh God, no. I had no idea when it all came out. Oh my God, I nearly died. Did you have roughly, did you nope. think you knew roughly? I, I roughly thought 60, 70,000. Mm. But yeah, it ended up being 230. Uh, wow. I know. Quarter of a million, quarter of a million bucks. Oh, don't say that. It's horrific. That makes me feel sick. Sorry. It was horrific. Um, 
And who, how did you, what was the moment when you heard that, that number? Oh, I think I just about vomited. Who told you? When, when did you? The detectives, the detectives that were working on the case, yeah. It had been nearly 18 months, probably about 14 months after I had been caught and dismissed from my job um, because I really had to, you know, go through a lot of stuff. And all my bank accounts, they had all the paperwork to all my accounts. And I remember they said to me about a month before I was sentenced, Kathy, this is the amount we've come up with. You have the right to dispute it. There's all your account papers. We've copied them. Sit down, go through it yourself, highlight them, whatever you want to do. And you come up with the tally. And if you're disputing what we've come up with, then please let us know. I sat down several nights and went through stuff and I was just so sick. I'm going, my God, $1,200 here, $600 there, $1,800 here. Like it just all added up and he was right. It was 236000 or something in the end. But he did say to me, which was interesting because I've never been you know, involved in the justice system, corrections, police, anything like that before. And he did say that they do get to a certain amount. I think it's like three, four hundred thousand, and they stop counting because the courts, the sentencing is similar on two million dollars as what it would be on about four hundred thousand dollars. So they get to a certain amount and they just stop counting. They just know it's in excess of. Ah, yeah, but with me it was the uh, final amount down to like 76 cents or something. And I guess, I don't guess, I know that some of the friends that I've lost along the way, that was the turning point. When it came out at the sentencing, it was like, oh, my God, Cathy only ever told us it was about 60 or 70. They felt I had deceived them. But the reality was, Michelle, I didn't know. And that's that's really poor on my behalf. I should have known. I should have known. But you know what? You just blank it out. You don't want to know. Thank you to patrons Emma Wallace-Smith, Sarah Law, Mother Flynn, Beck Knight and Isabel Freeman. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're in a position to offer Catherine employment around the Wimmera Mallee area, 
and by the way, she does have a car, so it doesn't have to be in Horsham itself, please send her a message through our Facebook or Instagram accounts and we'll make sure she gets it. Catherine is experienced in office admin, but she's very interested in moving into mentoring and counselling women. And she's very close to completing a certificate course in that area. Tell me about when it ended. It'd been going on for years and you're even getting to the point where you are obviously probably out of debt. You've dealt with that, but you're obviously very unhappy. You're even suicidal. Your employers weren't noticing, I guess, for years and it's a lot of money. So how did it end? The accountants weren't noticing. Um, the, the owner of the business, you know, ran a, a very profitable business, you know, like she worked bloody hard. I don't, you know, and that's the worst part. She worked bloody hard to build her business up for years. Yeah, there's a lot of money flowing through if you were able to pinch that much money and not have it noticed. And then they changed an accountant. There's always a turning point. Yeah. They changed an accountant and uh, he used to deal with me um, when my boss was away. So, you know, a lot of the phone calls to do with with um, the accounting services, he would talk to me. And, um, you know, I would answer him honestly. But then some of the questions I'm going, oh, I think this guy's starting to cut on to a little bit. And uh, after a while, I realised that, yeah, he is, he's cottoning on to this. So for about a week, I was just so nauseous. I'm like, what do I do? Do I just go to them now and admit it? I really didn't know. And I guess in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have. Um, but no, it, it, I, I just sat back and waited. Yeah, waited. And I went to work one day. I walked in and my boss was there. Uh, her partner, husband was there. And they had a, another person there as just a witness and walked in and they just said, I think we need to talk. And I knew there and then. So that was when they said, you know, is there anything you want to tell us? And I said, yeah, actually there is. Mm. And that's how it came out. I didn't deny it. I didn't lie about it. I just said, yes, I have. I'm like so sorry. She was a mess. It was just awful. Um, so I was dismissed there and then. I was told that police would would be involved. They would be notifying the police that day and what have you. And uh, I said, yep, that's fine. I expected that. Yep. So I left the premises of my work that day. I went straight to my daughter's house. She was living on her own at the time then with the little baby. And I went to her and just broke down and said, look, this is what I've done. I've been dismissed. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she was a good support, shocked, but a good good support. Um, I guess she was in shock, probably Mm. didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, so we went and saw some friends, really close friends. She took me to see a couple of really close girlfriends and they were shocked, of course, but at the time they were supportive and just helped me through different processes as those next few days went on because... Um, yeah, what were they like? I mean, did the police come awful. straight away? What? No, 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 no. Never saw them, never heard from them. Never heard from them. I spent about six weeks just being nauseous. I could hardly walk around the town because the rumours, of course, were rife around town, you know. Every, everyone knew I worked there and so, of course, now everyone knew that I'd stolen and I didn't work there. Yeah. So um, lo and behold, about six weeks later, I was offered a position with um, somebody else in town, which 
virtually saved my life, I think, in a sense. I applied for a job thinking, well, I still have to feed myself. I still have to pay my mortgage. So um, I applied for a couple of jobs and um, I was lucky enough to get one with an employment and training company in town. Uh, The manager who employed me, I've known her for about 20-odd years we were never friends socially, so it wasn't like a friend giving a friend a job. I still had to go through all the process, the interview panel, but nothing came up about the theft. I knew that she knew, but I, I got the job. And you know what? For 18 months, I had that job. And in that time, mm. I handled corporate cards, petty cash. I handled student student fees. I controlled all of that. And I did that without not even even thinking of taking a dollar out of the student's fees. Never crossed my mind. Have you ever spoken to her about why she employed you? Because she she knew the big picture. She knew where I'd worked before. She knew that I'd been held in high esteem. She knew what I was, not that window frame. Hmm. God, what a special woman. Oh, my God, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. She's amazing and one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. Do you know that not only she, mainly she, but also the company, um, because they're sort of South Australia, Victoria-wide, HR were told about it and they couldn't dismiss me because I hadn't done anything wrong in that time, but they supported me through all my counselling sessions, my court hearings, my days where I actually could not work because something had happened. I had to go and have an interview with a detective or something and I would be mentally unwell. So they supported me through all of that. And that that was a big decision for the judge too when he had to sentence me. He said that because she had written a brilliant reference and he struggled with sentencing me. He said that. He said, "I, I... I am having trouble sentencing you because I don't see the point, basically. Um, He said, I know you've done wrong. He said, I, you know, but at the end of the day, he said, you've got a future with this company. You've thrived and you're going to continue thriving. He said, you have a family, um, you know, children, grandchildren that, that, you know, you love and depend on you. He said, you have a father that's got dementia now in a nursing home and and he's dying. He said, you have so much still to offer. But he said, you know what? If I don't sentence you or I give you a very, very short sentence um, or just a corrections order, which he had looked into, um, he said, the prosecution are most likely going to appeal it and you will get a very long sentence. And he said, I don't want that. Is there a part of the sentencing that is about you paying reparations, about you repaying some of the money? That never came out. Right. It was never, yeah, which is, which is interesting because um, when I was in prison, you know, there, there was quite a bit of white collar in there. Yeah. And um, just, you know, you, you talk as you do. And a, a lot of them did have to pay back. Yeah, that's what I thought because I would have thought if you were gainfully employed, and you were thriving and they were really happy with you, that that would be an alternative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But 
that's not how the community or society sees it. People want to see you punished. They do. They want to see you punished and they want to see you behind bars, literally. They sure don't want to see you thriving in adverted commas, do they? No, which is which is the struggle now, yeah. you know, on the other side, the flip side, mm. you know, um, people don't want to see you thrive. They don't want to see you make good of your life now. They want you to continue suffering. That's what people are like. Which is so hard because particularly in a small community where so many people do know you and know you so well and have known you for such a long time. You're not, you're not in your 20s. Your age should actually work for you because it's been decades of service to the community. That's what I'm finding really, that's what I'm really struggling with, having never lived in such a small community myself. Oh, I was, like people have said to me, well, you know, you need to move to Melbourne. You need to move to, back to Ballarat where I was. I'm shocked that you still live in Horsham, I have uh, to say. There are reasons. My dad's here. Um, when he passes, that may be a different story. Okay. Um, you know, if I got a call in the middle of the night saying, you know, look, your dad's had a turn. We don't think he's going to last another couple of hours. It's only 40 minutes down the road. If I'm in Melbourne or Adelaide or somewhere like that, how am I going to get to him? Yes, hours away. You know, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it. And I've got my grandchildren. Yeah. These are the, the things that are keeping me going. If I went to Melbourne, um, yeah, I have friends down there. But, yeah, and I probably would get a job a lot easier than up here. But you know what? There's also a part of me that feels I have a right to be here. I have a right to walk down the main street. I have a right to go to the supermarkets here. And it's like showing people, I guess, for me, I've done my time. I've been judged. I was sentenced. I've done my time. I've done a lot of work in prison that they have no idea about. I've done my nine months in parole here perfectly. And I want to just get on with my life. I have a right to that. So I guess there's a part of me that feels that I have a right to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It is your home. It is. So how long did you do in, in prison in the end? I mean, what, what was your sentence? What did you get on the, on the top and on the bottom? <laughs> 18 on the top and nine on the bottom which was really good. Um, so I got under that 12 months. Yep. Anything from 12 months and above can really affect you in a lot of, lot of ways with mm. things. But I, I got nine months. Well, I got 18 months, but he said to me nine months before parole. And so, yeah, I was out on my nine months and then I had the nine months of parole during COVID, <laughs> which was also very interesting. Mm. Yeah, and... and Nine months in prison was enough for me to know I never, ever want to go back again. Yes. Tell us about women's prison. We've had a number of men on the show talking to us about men's prison and the various kinds of men's prisons. I'm assuming you went to a minimum security facility? I did eventually, like after the first couple of weeks. But but uh, Victoria, um, a lot of people don't realise, but Victoria only has two female prisons. Okay. Uh, the main one is Dame Phyllis. Dame Phyllis Frost. Yep, Frost. Now that holds up to about 600 women, I think. Um, mm. They've now been funded something like $18 million to build more beds down there, which is... Um, another area I don't really want to go down because I'm infuriated by that. Oh, we I love spending that... more money on prisons and less money on programs. 
exactly. So that's another podcast altogether, Michelle, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> um, but, yes, yeah, so it holds about 600 women. Now, that it's livable, but it's not nice. It is not nice. I was there for two weeks. That was enough for me. And I went straight then to Tarangawa, which is in Molden on the outskirts of Castlemaine there. There's a number of prisons around there, aren't there? Yeah. I think I've been to the ladies' prison, actually. There's a children's... Yes, um, mother and child. Hey? Mother and child units there. Yeah, the mother and child unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. And look, mm. it is a lovely little prison as far as prisons go, if you can ever say that. Do you know, and I tell everybody this, um, when I got down to, to Malden, there's different levels uh, that you you have to earn mm. to, to, to get into different accommodation. So it wasn't long and I must have been six weeks or something and I was actually in the, the main one at, at Malden. And um, I had out of my bedroom, the window just looked straight out on the Malden Rages and every night I watched the sunset oh, through my window. And that was a time for me to reflect, to think of my mum. It was, it was just a beautiful time and a beautiful view and if I was to say, if people said to me, is there anything you miss out of prison, I would go that view out of my bedroom window every night. But, yeah, it was, it, it, yeah, it was so different to Dame Phyllis. Like mm. Dame Phyllis was, you were in cells for the first week. They're, they're sort of like, I don't know if you've ever been to Dame Phyllis or you've ever seen no. them. The, right, you, you, the, the bank vaults. They're like a bank vault door with a little peephole you know wow yeah but and uh, I think there's six by 11 or something if I remember rightly but you know you've got everything in there you need it's just a little bed with a a, a vinyl mattress but that's psychologically challenging the men always talk about the psychological effect of knowing that you're in jail the sounds the clank of the doors all of that is very challenging psychologically and they say you'll see the biggest hardest man you've ever seen in your life break down and cry on his first night in jail yep well my first night in jail um, when I got to Dame Phyllis it was freezing cold it was 28th of June it was freezing absolutely freezing had to walk through the compound in the pouring rain freezing bitter winds carrying the stuff got in there got into my cell and I looked at the shower in the corner and I thought I've got to have a hot shower even though I'd had one at reception I still needed another hot shower did that you get one container of blue wash and that does your hair and you, but you, everything, it's disgusting. So have a wash, have a shower, put your your, your prison pajamas on, hop into the bed, and they came along and clunk went that door. Oh my god, I will never forget that sound. Locked in. Yep. It was like yeah, and you wouldn't want to have claustrophobia, I tell you. And that was it. And. The next, the next morning, like I curled up all night into a fetal position. And I don't think I moved. I was mentally, physically exhausted because I travelled the previous few days in the lockup at the local police station until they could ship me to Melbourne it was horrific. So I just cuddled up into this fetal position and slept. Don't think I moved. And then in the morning, there's this speaker above my head and it started bells started going ding dongs and I'm like what am I supposed to do no one had told me but what it was was they come along and they have a look in the peephole and you have to stand there with your ID so they make sure you're alive 
after a week in the in the initial lockup cells, I then went to what I would call is a five star at Dame Phyllis. One of the five star units had a there were six girls in there, six ladies, and one of them had misbehaved, so she was slammed into the slot right, taken off in the little bus with no windows and off she went to the slot for whatever behaviour she'd done. And so there was a spare bed there. What is the slot? Is that like the the shoe in Orange is the New Black? The slot, oh, you, that's it, the slot. You'd get an hour, an hour out a day or an hour of light a day. Um, no TV, no nothing. It's just, Oof. yeah, the slot. God. That's how, long, how long would you get in the slot on average? Um, oh, look, you could get possibly a week two weeks it depends it depends I wasn't there long enough to really experience a lot of girls going in the slot what's what what was her crime that she got the slot from what I gathered from the other girls in the unit they'd had a big fight over food food is a big thing god or or space in the pantry and she'd lost her her you know temper and any fighting like that I just grab you right you're in the slot so she went off to the slot for however long. I don't know. So funny thing is I got her room. Mm. So off I go and I get there and there were a couple of ladies in there that were, that were elderly. They'd been in, that sort of reminded me of Lizzie Birdsworth out of Wentworth. Remember old Lizzie? Yes, of course. Keep coming back. Yeah. There are definite characters like those. So anyway, these ladies just sort of nurtured me and said, oh, you know, this is your part of the pantry and this is your Oh. and this is your shelf and they said but the girl who's gone to the slot this is all her food so you're allowed to eat that because she doesn't get to take it with her <sighs> and I went oh okay and I opened up the fridge and her shelf was like empty and I said where's all her food and they opened up the freezer and they said here it is mm-hmm. she wouldn't eat fruit and vegetables she only likes chicken stitzels so there was like a whole thing of frozen chicken stitzels. And I'm like, holy cow. I said, well, when's the next order, food order that I can do? And they said, well, really bad luck because at Dame Phyllis you have to order your food two weeks in advance. Oh, God. So I was only there for a week. So whatever was coming in that week was going to be what she had already previously ordered, which was more chicken stitzels. So you were stuck with her order. I was stuck with her order. Oh, no. Right. So I had chicken stitzels, like (sighs) they were breeding. They were breeding in the front. And I'm like, holy (sighs) hell. And no one shares food in prison, really. You don't don't even look at anyone's side of the pantry. You You can't swapsies? Oh, maybe if you get on, if it's a really good friend, you might. (sighs) So anyway, I spent... Oh, that lunch and that tea was eating chicken schnitzels and I was like, this. So I can't live on chicken schnitzels for a whole week. <laughs> so I'm walking around the compound and a couple of the young girls, now there are a lot of characters in prison as well, a lot of really good chicks in a sense, but characters, you know. They might be bad on the outside, but, oh, they're funny. Anyway, a couple of the young girls sort of um, took to me and I became Nuna. That's what they call me, Nuna, in prison. So... Anyway, we went for a walk around the, the compound trying to do our exercise, you know. You say hello to Judy Moran and people like that as you're walking around the compound, you know. Anyway, I said to the girls, bloody hell, I said, I've got all these bloody chicken stitzels. I don't know what to do with it. Well, the young girls were like, oh, chicken snitties. We'd kill for a chicken snitty. 
they were still in the, the part where you were locked up, the cell part. So they couldn't get chicken stitties. That was like a luxury to them. Oh. And they're like, well, no, no, what do you want? We'll order because they would get their food from the kitchen, you see. It would be oh, ordered. they got meals. They got meals because they weren't allowed to cook, right? Ah. Because when you first come in, they assess you. You're not allowed to do any cooking or anything because they need to assess you. You could be a serial killer, you know. Yep. So they don't, yeah. So um, they they order meals. They're pretty basic, but, you know, you can have a choice. But they're not schnitties. No, they're not schnitties. That's pretty okay. So they'd go, no, no, we kill for snitties. How about we order you what you want, like a bit of lasagna or, you know, if you want something else, um, roast, roast and veg. From roast the- of the day. Yeah, which was pretty good. But, you know, covered <laughs> in gravy, six inches of gravy, but that's all right. Yeah. And they'd say, can you get us chicken snitties? And I'm going, well, I can't because it's trafficking in, in jail. Like I'll end up in the slot. And they're going, come on, no, no, look, you know, and anyway, I went back and I thought about it. Oh, I can't eat another bloody chicken snitty after about three days. <laughs> so what I did was while the other girls in the unit were asleep, I'd get up and I'd cook these chicken snitties and I'd wrap them up in foil, right? Wrap them up in foil and I'd put them in a corner of the fridge or whatever. And um, during the day, I'd go for a walk around the compound with one or two snitties down my trackies, right? <laughs> and the other girls would come out with like, a little container of lasagna down their trackies and we'd managed to do swappies. Now I did that for about four days. The girls loved it. They were having chicken stitties. I was getting roasted the day. I was getting lasagna. No, it's what you've got to do to survive. This was my second week, Michelle, and I'm trafficking in prison. Yeah, trafficking lasagna, not smack. And I even got to the stage where I, the girls used to say, no, no, when you get out, you've got to do a Dane Phillips Fox recipe book on 101 ways how to cook a chicken stitty because I'd do things like take the crumb off and cut it into strips and then I'd do other stuff with it. It's much nicer than those other recipes I hear from the guys, like those horrible prison pizzas they make with craft singles and noodles. Yeah. Oh, don't, don't talk about it. They live on noodles. Yeah, no, I much prefer your snitties. I did have some bread when I was in the lot, um, in the first part in the the cell part and the bread was disgusting i was just gonna ask if it was nice was it nice soft bread or was it no. awful nah. and do you know why why because they cook it at the prison in the in the oh. kitchen those who work in the kitchen however it hasn't got very much yeast in it because mm. yeast they're not oh, they'll use it to make grog to make alcohol so yep. the, the the kitchen cannot they're only allowed a certain amount of yeast in there. So they have to make it spread out over all these loaves of bread. So um, there's not much yeast. It's pretty disgusting. It's almost like prison sucks, Catherine. (laughs) Well, you know what? Dame Phyllis was pretty yucky. But, you know, there are girls that have been there for years and they survive, you know, they survive. But getting to Tarangawa was different, like, you know, you travelled up the, the 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 freeway where there, the colder freeway up to um up to Malden and yeah, I remember I travelled up with a young girl. Oh, she was blonde. She was in for drug trafficking and stuff, only for a short period of time. And they had a spare seat on the brawler, and they had had room up at Tarangara. And they sort of said to her, "Would you like to go to Tarangara?" She said, "Where's that?" And they said, "Oh, just up the road. You'll like it." And she went, oh, all right, anything to get out of this place. Don't fill us, I'll go. 
we get up there and we get out and she looks at me and she goes, no, no, where the fuck are we? <laughs> I said, what do you mean where the fuck are we? I said, we're at Molden, Tarangawa Prison. She said, oh, I thought we were going somewhere down near the beach. I oh, said, bless. oh, my God, darling girl, no. Bless. It's a tree no. change, darling, not a sea change. Absolutely. And she said, but whereabouts? I said, we're up near Bentico. She said, that's three hours further away from where my family live. Anyway, Tarangawa was interesting, you know. There's about 60 women I think they can put in comfortably there. But what I liked about Tarangawa were the mother and child units. We had little kids running around. Some of the mums had given birth in prison. Some had just newborns when they went in. Um, Others had children at home but then had to apply to have their, their youngest child with them. Um, but it was it was lovely because we had all the little playgrounds and that there for the kids and, you know, you'd hear their voices out in the yard and it, it sort of normalised things a lot. Yeah, and I remember when I visited, some of the women talked about the environment as being the safest that they had felt that they felt that for them and their children, it was the safest environment they'd ever been in. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what environment it is. You'll always get a bad apple, a bad apple mm. or two. But anyone really mucked up there, you knew you were back down to Dome Phyllis, no question, no question. So, and it was a privilege to be there. A lot of women would say, you know, I'm just so grateful to be here, not down at Dame Phyllis, whether or not they had had children. The worst part for me with Dame Phyllis, and I still get emotional when I, I think about it, my very first visit was the first weekend I was there. My daughter came down with my foster granddaughter who was 10, 10, 11 at the time. And I was in the um, in the visitor centre and uh, just waiting and they walked in the door my little grandson who was about three at the time he just came running up you know he all he all he could see was nuna nuna that's beautiful I looked over at my 10 year old granddaughter and I'll never ever forget the look of her face when she saw me in that space suit Mm. all tied up with cable ties not one millimeter to breathe around my neck my sleeves and just seeing all the cable ties. Mm. And she didn't know her reaction was, do I go and hug you? Do I stand back? The look on her face, I will never forget. And it, it was awful. Yep. And and I remember saying to my daughter afterwards, um, please don't bring the kids back here. As long as I'm here, do not bring them back. Towards the end of your time there, were you nervous about leaving? Just today I was talking to somebody about the end of lockdown and we were saying that we get this strange anxiety about the end of lockdown every time. When The the longer the lockdown, the more this anxiety creeps in about the world starting again and going back out into it. And it made me wonder about leaving prison. Absolutely. Before it got close to my time, um, other women who were leaving I could see it with them and I used to question it and think, my God, aren't you going to be excited? Why aren't you excited? Some of them would just spend a couple of days in their room. They didn't really want to come out and I couldn't figure that out. But you know what? About three weeks before I was to be released, once I got my release date, I think the reality set in and I guess it was like, what's the reaction going to be to people when I get out? 
how I don't I don't know how to talk to people besides these women anymore. Like, and I was only in there nine months, Michelle. I can't even begin to think what women would be going through if they'd been incarcerated for four or five years. Yeah, the anxiety was real. There's excitement, but I think the anxiety overtook the excitement. Yeah, and 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 I think for about or oh, probably two nights prior to my release, I didn't really sleep very well. It, it, it's, I don't know, it becomes your home. It, it really does. And and my room was all me. It was, I had all my pictures up of my family, all the things I had made in prison, the ceramics and everything. It was all, all around. This was my, this was my nine months. Everything was in here, you know, and I was leaving it and going out into that big wide world. It was scary shit. It was scary shit. Plus, I assume there would be a level of authenticity about being in prison where everything's kind of out there. I feel like there would be kind of no shame about or less shame about where, you know, what's happened, whereas them coming back to Horsham. I guess a lot of the anxiety was I didn't know. I didn't know what the reactions would be. Mm. Would people welcome me home and go, Kathy, it's great to see you, great to have you back, you know, blah, 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 or was it, was I going to get that, who in the hell does she think she is showing her face around here? I had no idea. And? And let's be honest, both. Okay. Both. Absolutely both. Even just not that long ago, I had somebody on social media put something up and it someone had sh- must have found it and shared it and there were a couple of comments and one of them was who in the hell does she think she is getting on there and talking about it as if it was a day in the park you know it wasn't a day in the park but you know this who in the hell does she think she is mm. well you know what i am who i am i've worked bloody hard to get through what i got through you know i i've I have remorse. I still carry shame. I'll carry shame till the day I die. Mm. But you know what? I do have a right to be here. I have a right to live my life and I have a right to be proud of who I have become on my journey. And maybe there are family members, maybe there are friends who don't like the person I've become on the other end, but maybe that was what I needed to do to become me and to find me again. Earlier, you mentioned that that first day when you were let go, when you went to work, the employers were there and you knew you were busted. It was all done. And you went to your daughter's house and she was supportive and she took you over to visit girlfriends and you said they were supportive at the time. Are they supportive now or are they some of the, they're not friends anymore? No. So talk, you don't have to talk about them specifically, but let's talk about some of the reactions you've, you've had since you got home to Horsham. Probably a couple of them, nothing, no contact whatsoever. Another one, maybe it took a long time, but finally she did say to me, I felt that you deceived me with the amount, um, which I have explained to you about and I tried to explain to her. But I think, you know, we're now talking probably two years has gone, 18 months, two years has gone. So they've probably moved on. And I've just accepted that I guess it's probably normal to lose some friendships. 
people probably perceive me in a different way now to what they did back then. And that that's fine. Are you literally seeing people in the street who are turning and walking away, that sort of stuff? I have a couple that are bumpy. It's funny. I, I do giggle about it to myself. You know, you'd be in the supermarket and someone will be coming towards you and you know them quite well in enough that you would normally say, hi, how are you going, you know, and they notice you and they quickly turn to the shelf and pretend they're looking at something on the shelf. I just keep walking and have a giggle to myself and I think, you know, it's just a hello. You don't have to let the world know that you're my best friend and maybe you were my partner in crime, but, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, mm. So I do have a giggle to myself. But, look, I do have some wonderful, wonderful friends and I'm very grateful for that, very, very grateful for that. The ones who have stuck by me, I guess, are the ones that I've been able to talk very honestly to them about the whole journey, like even the the crime and the whole journey. They're the ones who have wanted to listen. They haven't just made an assumption. They're the ones who have said, okay, what's happened? What, why did you do it? What, you know, and we've had this big debriefing. And they just go, you know what, we've known you for 15 years. We still love the old cat doll. I get called by my friend's cat doll. We still love the old cat doll. And, you know, we know that you're fucked up. But, you know, you've done your time. Yeah, no judgment. And, look, I've spoken in the last probably 12 months to to people that have been incarcerated, particularly males, I guess. And, yeah, their journeys were very, very similar in the sense that they come out the other end and it's like some family members just don't want to know you, some friends don't want to know you because maybe they don't like that you've come out as a decent person. Maybe society wants you to come out still as that criminal you went in. And, you know, we're labelled. We have a criminal record we're labelled. What people don't get is labels belong on jars, not on people. Give us a break. Did anyone in your life express any guilt about the fact that you were under so much pressure? No. No, they didn't. Um, I, know, I know that you didn't apply any of that and and you're not applying any blame on anybody else they didn't and I guess that's as far as family's concerned that saddens me because I've always been someone who's been there to pick up the pieces and some pretty drastic pieces along the way with um, a couple of my kids but yeah and, and to be honest I've got to be honest with you I've had um, accommodation struggles I'm still just living with a girlfriend at the moment. This is a second girlfriend. You know, they're all sort of sharing me out at the moment. Um, because I haven't got a job, I can't get a rental. Rentals are few and far between and there's even here in the country heaps of people applying for them. They're not going to give them to a, a, someone with a criminal record on Job Seeker when they can give it to somebody else who's, a, a, you know, a, a well-known person in the community and got a, got a job or owns a business. They're going to get it before me. So, I can't get accommodation or rental, I should say. So I'm lucky that I've got friends that have got spare bedrooms and say, come and stay with me for six months or whatever. But I feel that I'm still not grounded from prison. I haven't got a home. I've got nothing to call home. And I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I spent Sunday, Monday and Tuesday night in a motel here in Horsham that was 
provided by the Salvation Army. And no shame in that, sister. Nope. And, you know, it, it was hard to ask, mm-hmm. but I had to. I had nowhere to go. And, and you know, as I said, it was just that in between, mm-hmm. there was nowhere to go. I had no, no money, uh, very little money. Um, so, yeah, I had to do that. And um, the Salvos are great people. Yeah. I never thought I would see myself in a situation where I'd have to go to the Salvos and say, I need help. Yeah, well, yeah. the vast majority of people they help, you know, never thought they would yeah. have to ask the Salvos for help. But, I mean, that's oh. that's life and that's what they're there for. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that come out of prison, for a long time you're continually punished. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does. Um you know, I've got these barriers up that I'm, I've got a criminal record, um, but it's just constantly these barriers are put up. Every corner I turn, they're there. I can't overcome them. Well, you can and you will. I can and I will, yes. I'm very determined. I guess when I first came out of prison, I had these expectations, you know, that oh, yes, you know, I'm going to get a, a flat or a unit within three to six months and I'll have a part-time job and I'll be able to do this and be able to do that. Well, as I said, I came out right at the beginning of COVID. Here I am, what, 16 months later and um, I'm no better off. In fact, I probably would have been better off in prison. Well, that's why those old Lizzie Birdsworths are in there, darling, because it was winter when you went in there. That's right. Yes, exactly. And and that that yeah, that was so true. That was so so true. But you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've got my family. I've got beautiful friends, and you know, it, it is what it is. I've done my time. I'm going to live with it for the rest of my life. But a lot of good has come from it too, though, Michelle. I was only in there a couple of days at Tarangaran and they said to me, oh, by the way, um, your caseworker is Miss So-and-so. Um, she's on holidays, but she should be back by the end of the week and you'll get to meet her. Well, the other girls are going, oh, my God, what have you done to deserve her? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, oh, her nickname's Vinegar Tit. Everything's relates around Wentworth. Yep. She said, they said, no, she's Vinegar Tit. Oh, my God, Kathy. No, you've got the worst officer ever. Anyway, of course, she was very, very strict and all the rest of it. I gave her about six weeks, I think, and we started to soften and I got her to laugh a few times. And anyway, she was amazing. She she went back a lot into my past, which I have spoken to you about, you know, living at home and, and with all those those people around. And she hit the nail on the head. She said, barriers, girlfriend, you need to Put up barriers. Yes, absolutely. You haven't had barriers. Boundaries, absolutely. Boundaries and barriers. You yeah. haven't had them. And I did uh, I did all the courses in there. I did everything. She'd say to me, you know, there's a course coming up in a couple of weeks. She said, I've already put your name down for it. Great. You're doing it, blah, blah, blah. And that was great. And it was hard, very hard, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But I remember saying to myself, now listen here, if you don't do this, you're never going to do it when you get out. Yeah. You're here for a reason. So I did it and with all the other courses and with the support of my caseworker, I did. I walked out a different person and maybe this is what people don't like about me. Maybe I do set those, you know. Yeah. No, I don't have money. 
I don't have the money yeah. for whatever it is you need. You're an adult. That, I think, sort of shocked a few of them. It was like, whoa, okay, yeah. well, Jesus, she's not my cup of tea anymore, is she? Yeah. So I thought, what am I going to put my energy into? I, I need to do something. So I did a lot of mentoring in prison as well with other women. When I came out, I thought, okay, I'm going to continue this. This, this I think, is where my avenue is. And I don't even know how it came about, but Women and Mentoring um, is an organisation in Melbourne that jumped out at me one particular day. And I thought, I would love to do this. It's, it's mentoring women travelling through the justice system. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, like you, like oh. no one knows how to handle the justice system until you're in it yeah. and you're learning the yeah. hard way. Yeah. Oh, it, it's amazing. Um, I'm actually working with a girl at the moment. I can't say who she is, obviously, but um, she is on a murder trial, mm. a, a murder charge, and she she goes to trial later this year, early next year. And I've been working with her for quite some time now. And I'm just about finished my diploma of community services. I've done that in the last nine months. I need to do some placements. I've got about 100 hours of placement. So if anyone's out there and would like to offer me a placement, doesn't have to be for the whole 100 hours. Mm -hmm. I'd just do 10 hours somewhere if I had to, just to get my placement hours up so I can finish that diploma. I'd love to work in places like the Orange Door, which mm -hmm. help women. I'd love to work in places like even Vacro that does a lot of work um, within the prison system because you know what, getting released from prison, I was lucky. I had somewhere to go. It wasn't my own home, but I still had somewhere to go. But there are people out there who have nowhere to go. Yeah. Or when they do go, it is so disgusting. They will do anything they can to get back into prison. A homelessness is big and employment is big. So they're the two things. And I cannot stress that enough. Thank you to our guest, Catherine. And don't forget that if you have a job going in the Wimmera Mallee area, Catherine does have a car and you can send her a message through our Facebook or Instagram pages. Thank you to our patrons, Amber Wheeler, Amanda Wythe, Kim Stevenson, Robbie Porteous, Amy, Sarah Cree and Carla Gunn. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Don't work too hard, please, ladies. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.